Hello, my name is Isaac Keith Martinez, and welcome to Isaac's Haunted Beard. Today we're going to talk about the Death Wish franchise, starring the late, great Charles Bronson as our hero of these films. I recently watched all five Death Wish films, but not all in one day. I did it over the course of three days. On night one, I did a double feature of Death Wish and Death Wish 2. On night two, I did a double feature of Death Wish 3 and Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. And on night three, I watched Death Wish 5, The Face of Death. I'm going to tell you a little about all five of these films in case you were ever curious about this franchise, and it will include some light spoilers. The first film is based on a novel of the same name by Brian Garfield. Although Brian Garfield wrote a sequel novel called Death Sentence, the film Death Wish 2 is not an adaptation of that book. There is, however, a 2007 film adaptation of that book that exists, starring Kevin Bacon, which I've never seen. But uh, now I want to see it. <laughs> At some point, action fans explore the cinematic world of Charles Bronson. And within that exploration, it eventually leads to the Death Wish franchise. Here's a basic plot summary of the first film from 1974, Death Wish. Charles Bronson plays Paul Kersey, an architect, a husband, and a father living in New York City. One day, his wife and daughter are attacked by thugs. His wife, beaten his daughter, beaten and raped. His wife dies from the injuries, and his daughter, traumatized, becomes catatonic. After seeing that the cops can't do anything about it, Paul Kersey becomes a vigilante, roaming New York City at night, blowing away the scum of the street. I've only seen this film twice. The first time I saw it must have been about, I'd say, 25 years ago. I remember thinking it was okay at the time. But the last time I watched it, last week, I really enjoyed it. I think when I was younger, my benchmark for films were more recent films. You know, like if I watched something that I considered old, I had to compare it to something that I, you know, knew was new. As though I thought, this needs to be as good as movies that I like, that are more current. As though films got better, the newer they are. But, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I was wrong. I think, that's a, I think that's a common thing that young people do. Actually, that's the thing that a lot of people do. <laughs> I'm just, I'm very happy I'm not that way anymore. Um, I'm, I'm happy I evolved past that type of thinking. Benchmarks still exist for me, 
in that I have favorite examples of films from different genres, but they certainly don't exist for me when I watch a film for the first time. I give it a chance to be its own experience, or at least I try to. I could see how a young person may think this film from 1974 could be paced slowly, but when I watched it recently, I found myself thinking that at 94 minutes, this film was paced very well. It's not long before Bronson's character is in full-on vigilante mode. And every time you see him kill a criminal, it's not long before you see him kill another. Charles Bronson was 53 when he made this film. He plays the part with a quiet cool. You could have told the story with a younger character, but I think audiences would expect a younger character to be more animated with their performance. Bronson's character approaches his vigilanteism with a good head on his shoulder, which seems like a funny thing to say when describing a vigilante, but he does. He knows how to not panic. He's graceful and believable, which also makes it easier, I think, for the audience to accept the lead action hero to be played by a 53-year-old man. And as these movies, you know, keep being made, he just keeps getting older and older. The violence in this first film is not graphic. It's mostly gunshots. You see blood, but nothing too bloody. There's some knife cutting here and there, but once again, you see blood, but nothing too bloody. The most intense scene of violence is that first attack between the thugs and Paul Kersey's wife and daughter. Most of that intensity is the emotions that you feel when you're sitting through watching that scene. Because if you compare it to other movies that have similar scenes, it's not as brutal as the on-screen violence you've seen in other films. This film is directed by Michael Winner. Before this film, Michael Winner had directed Charles Bronson in Chateau's Land, The Mechanic, and The Stone Killer. I've seen The Mechanic. That's the only one of those three films that I've seen. That's from 1972, and in that film, Charles Bronson plays an assassin. I really like that film. Um, that film was remade in 2011 with Jason Statham playing the Bronson role. And actually, I've seen that one too, and it's not bad. It's a little different, but it's still pretty cool. Michael Winner later went on to direct Charles Bronson in Death Wish 2 and Death Wish 3. Although Michael has made a bunch of films, the horror movie fan of me needs to point out that he directed the 1977 film The Sentinel, which I highly recommend. I really like that film. This is interesting. Michael Winter was not only a film director, but he was also a restaurant critic. What a life. <laughs> this film has a supporting cast of actors that have some very familiar faces, way more than any of the other films in the Death Wish franchise. Although each Death Wish film does have some recognizable faces. And the thing about these faces is most of them are people that weren't famous yet. Now, as far as part one is concerned, of the three thugs that attack Paul Kersey's wife and daughter, one of them is played by a young Jeff Goldblum, wearing a Jughead hat. 
Which is a little weird, huh? To see someone that is usually a nice guy in movies and a guy that's really beloved outside of movies. Just everybody adores Jeff Goldblum. And then you see him in such a violent, disgusting role. It's kind of hard to swallow. But at the same time, when, when you see someone so recognizable to you doing something so horrific, it almost kind of softens the scene because if it was like an unknown actor, it would feel more real. But there's something about recognizing Jeff Goldblum that suddenly makes it seem like, oh, this is just a movie. Or at least that's how it kind of plays out to me. Lieutenant Frank Ochoa is assigned to the case of finding the vigilante. He's played by Vincent Gardenia, who, although he's made a bunch of films, I will always think of him as Mr. Mushnik in Little Shop of Horrors. Is there anybody out there who sees Vincent Gardenia and doesn't immediately think of Little Shop of Horrors? Uh, I did recognize a couple of the police officers in the film. Two of the cops in the film are played by Paul Dooley, who I always think of as the dad from Sixteen Candles. And granted, when I mention these actors, they usually have large filmographies, and I could just sit here naming all the movies. But mostly what I'm going with here is when you see an actor, is there usually like one movie that pops into your head first? So like with Paul Dooley, I'm like, hey, it's the dad from 16 Candles. And I, I like <laughs> I like I like 16 Candles. And I like John Hughes films. So that should come as a surprise to no one that that's the movie I would think of. And one of the other cops is played by Olivia Dukakis, who I mostly remember from Moonstruck. She had a great performance in that film. Oh, and you know what's interesting? In Moonstruck, her character in that movie is married to uh, Vincent Gardinia. I mean, not the actor, but Vincent Gardinia plays her husband. Uh, one of the muggers in the final act of the film is played by Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, who is best known for playing Freddie Boom Boom Washington from the TV series Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> There's a joke from Welcome Back, Cotter, and I think it's in the first episode when you meet the Sweat Hogs. That's the name of the gang in the show for the first time. He introduces himself as Freddie Boom Boom Washington and Mr. Cotter asks, uh, Boom Boom, why do they call you Boom Boom? And he answers, because I can do this. A boom 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 boom. And then Mr. Cotter tries to interpret what he means by that and he goes, oh, you play the bass? He goes, nah, I could just do this. A boom 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 boom. Paul Kersey's vigilantism inspires other would-be victims to stand up for themselves, including a character played by Helen Martin, who I loved as Pearl from 227. I remember watching 227 a lot when I was a kid. I revisited about uh, 227 about two years ago. It's held up really well for me. That, that's a series I'd love to have the whole collection of on DVD. Uh, the last person I want to mention is a really tiny role. A cashier in a grocery store I immediately recognized because she was played by Sonia Menzanoa. I think I said her last name correctly. Not sure, though. <laughs> She's best known as playing Maria from Sesame Street. I read she was the director's girlfriend at the time. 
It's crazy when you see people from Sesame Street in feature films. Earlier this year, I watched the film FX from 1986. That movie has Roscoe Orman, who we all know as Gordon from Sesame Street. Did you know four different actors played Gordon? Death Wish was remade by director Eli Roth in 2018 with Bruce Willis playing the Charles Bronson role. I didn't see that film. I'd like to see it. Um, I'll go into it with an open mind. I'm not going to try to compare it to the first film or to Charles Bronson. I won't compare Bruce Willis to Charles Bronson. I'll allow it to be its own thing, especially considering that I'd like to touch upon something I mentioned in another episode that I did on my podcast. Is it fair to call um, this movie a remake if it's also adapted from a novel, right? It's an adaptation of a book. I think people are quick to call something a remake if it's adapted from the book, especially if they don't know it's originally from a book. The score to Death Wish is by Herbie Hancock. And <laughs> when I was a kid, Herbie Hancock had a hit single called Rocket with a really neat music video which I encourage you to look up. And this, this score sounds nothing like that song Rocket. And, and since, since, you know, that song, I think I've later discovered that Herbie Hancock was a very accomplished musician and has had a, a much larger career than I realized. Uh, because, you know, Rocket was kind of a, a breakdancing song, a song that people used to like to pop and breakdance to. So not that I knew how to break dance or pop. I was a little kid. I was a scrub. <laughs> so, um, like I said, that first night, I did a double feature. So, after revisiting part one, I screened Death Wish 2. Now, I'm going to admit something to you. It's maybe not a popular thing to admit, not a cool thing to admit, but hey, I am not ashamed <laughs> to say I have not seen every movie. I'm not that guy. <laughs> Uh, so what I'm, what I'm, what I am admitting to you right now is that Death Wish 2, 3, 4, and 5 were all first time screenings for me. And I was very excited to, to see these films finally. And I bet all of you are way cooler than me. You guys have seen all these Death Wish movies a bunch of times. And maybe you're thinking, why am I even listening to the scrub talk about movies that I know way more than he does about. Well, because <laughs> A, maybe you were friends. Maybe you just enjoy spending time with me. And B, on the off chance that you have never seen these movies and you're always curious, what I'm really trying to provide here is just a very simple explanation of what you can expect from each film so it can help you decide if you want to check them out. So let's continue, shall we? Death Wish 2 was released in 1982. In this film, Paul Kersey is now living in Los Angeles. And it all starts up again when his housekeeper and his daughter are both raped and murdered by a new gang of thugs. Now, L.A. has a vigilante problem, so they call New York 
to see what they did when they had their vigilante problem. Vincent Gardenia reprises his role as Frank Ochoa. This film is faster paced than part one, and a shorter film coming in at only 88 minutes. Kersey is focused on revenge in this film. He is specifically after the gang responsible for his daughter's murder. As we're in the first one, he was just so sickened by the idea of crime and street thugs that he just kind of went after anybody that he saw committing a crime. Now, one of those gang members in this film is played by Lawrence Fishburne. You know, in his early roles, he would usually be credited as Larry Fishburne. But in some of those early roles, like this one, he's credited as Lawrence Fishburne III. It wasn't until 1993 that he officially went exclusively by Lawrence Fishburne. The score to Death Wish 2 was done by Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page. When I saw Jimmy Page's name on the screen, I was surprised. Like, who would have ever thought putting this combination together? The guitarist of Led Zeppelin with the Death Wish franchise. And yet it works really well. But as it turns out, the reason for this is mostly because Jimmy Page and the director, Michael Winner, were neighbors at the time. <laughs> and I like Jimmy Page's score. I think it's pretty cool. And I like Death Wish, too. I thought it was pretty cool as well. But that was my first double feature. So on to night three. From 1985, Death Wish 3. This time, Paul Kersey is focusing his wrath on a street gang that are terrorizing a community in New York comprised mostly of senior citizens. Kersey is also doing his vigilantism with the blessings of the chief of police, who feels that the police can't take on the gangs with the same way that Kersey can, because the cops have all these rules that they have to follow in this movie. Notice I said in this movie. <laughs> As where Paul Kersey has nothing restricting him from doing whatever he wants. And this is a police chief who is aware of Kersey's past, so he seeked him out to help. Well, kinda. <laughs> Paul Kersey shows up because he's visiting a friend, and his friend ends up getting murdered by a gang member. And then, well, I don't want to give too much away, but when the police chief finds out, that this person who was murdered is friends with Paul Kersey. He knows who Paul Kersey is and recruits him to help take care of the gang problem. Now, this film leads to an all-out war between the gangs versus Kersey, the police, and the community who rise to defend themselves because they spend this whole movie being victims and then in that final act, they join the fight. This is not as serious of a film as the first two, it feels a little cheesy. Like, this one feels the most like an exploitation film. I guess this one in part four. You know, but I'm also, I'm so in on all these characters, and I enjoy this film. I don't really care that the films kind of change over the course of the sequels. And it's the one that I keep thinking about since watching them. So, you know, 
I don't really know if this is my favorite of the five films, but I feel like it is. But I also am aware that I'm allowed to change my mind whenever I want. So <laughs> as of right now, I really, I really think that Death Wish 3 is currently my favorite of the five films. Uh, as far as famous faces are concerned, you'll recognize Alex Winter as one of the gang members. Alex Winter, as we all know, is mostly known for playing Bill in the Bill and Ted films. And you may notice that Jimmy Page's name is in the credits again for the musical score, but it's not a new score. It's just a recycling of the Death Wish 2 score. So, eh. <laughs> I found out that there was a Death Wish 3 video game, which feels really random to me. Especially considering, like, the time, you know? It's the 80s, where video games, I think, were more targeted towards children. But I don't really know video games and the history of video games very well, so I don't really feel qualified to say that. And just saying that, nowadays I know that it has a large adult audience, so you can make adult-themed video games. But 1997, it just seems a little random to pick an R-rated film uh, that's from a franchise that's really not tar targeted towards kids and might even be considered kind of obscure to kids that they'd make a video game for it. Eh, I like that it exists, though. It just seems weird. So the second film of my double feature that night was, of course, from 1987, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. Paul Kersey returns to Los Angeles. And this time, he's not after street thugs. He's taking on the world of organized crime. Paul is hired by a millionaire to wipe out drug lords of L.A. In this film, Paul is less of a vigilante and more of a hitman. This film feels far removed from the tone of part one. Talk about part three feeling different. Part four is like, whoa, it's way different. And you really have to suspend your disbelief that Bronson can do the things that he has to do in this film and survive it. The final act of this film sees Bronson take on the bad guys in a roller rink. And I love it because it just looks super 80s and I dig it. You know, in 1994, this film was remade in Bollywood. Uh, that film is called, well, it's, it's spelled M-O-H-R-A. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Mahara? Please forgive me if I pronounce that incorrectly. Death Wish 4 is 99 minutes and was a bit of a failure at the box office. But Mahara is 177 minutes and was a huge hit in India. As far out as this franchise has become by this point, of course I'm still having fun. Because <laughs> these are some groovy movies, man. I dig them. They're just wild, violent exploitation films. Um, so that's the end of my second night, which leads me to my final evening and the final entry in the franchise from 1994, Death Wish 5, The Face of Death. This is the least violent film in the franchise. Franchise, excuse me. Charles Bronson doesn't shoot a gun until one hour and seven minutes into this film. In the fifth Death Wish film, Paul Kersey is once again after mobsters, not street thugs. And the story returns back to New York, even though it was filmed in Canada. But do you see the theme here? The pattern is that it goes back and forth between New York and L.A. with every other film. Even though at the end of part one, he moves to Chicago, 
Uh, so you, I went into going in part two, like, okay, makes sense in a different city, but no, it's LA. There's more focus on the story in this one as they take their time telling it before Paul Kersey goes on his traditional revenge rampage. Although that's not usually a bad thing in a film, and I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing in this film, but it's something we're not used to with this franchise. But keep in mind, Brunson's in his 70s by now, so he really can't be running around as much. So it does make sense to slow down the film to his pacing of what he's physically capable of doing. And like I said, it doesn't really hurt the film. It's not a great film, but it's not a bad film. I know it's considered a bad film. I think it has like a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is means nothing, but <laughs> this is something I'm aware of. The movie's okay, but it's the least fun film of all five of them. And it plays like exactly what it is, an entry into a film franchise that has run out of steam. As far as familiar faces in the cast, the David Lynch fan in me must point out that there are two actors from Twin Peaks in this film. Michael Parks, who you may know from Twin Peaks, as Jean Renault is in this movie. And Kenneth Welsh, who you may know from Twin Peaks, as Wyndham Earl is in this film. And there you go. I watched all five Death Wish films, and I liked it. I knew these movies existed as a kid. When I was a kid, I was super nerdy about movies, so I kind of knew what, what was out there. I knew about all the movies that was out there. And I had versatile taste. I like to watch a little bit of everything, as I think I still do. But, as a kid, I avoided these movies because, I mean, I'm just guessing, I'm trying to remember what I'm thinking as a child. And I think I may have looked at Charles Bronson and thought, that's not what an action hero is supposed to look like. That's an old man. When I was a kid, an action hero, at some point, <laughs> took off his shirt and had huge muscles. And that was Sylvester Stallone, and that was Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's what the 80s was like for me. Going into the 90s, there seemed to be a shift in what an action film star was like. An action film star knew martial arts as well as being capable of shooting a gun. So that meant that the two biggest stars of the 90s, or at least in the you know, first half, was Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal. So, I've also noticed that over the years the cult film community has really celebrated Charles Bronson and his filmography. And a lot of people uh, still carry the flag for Bronson. And I'm always educating myself about films and cult films. And I, I know I will be for the rest of my life. So I do my best to try and explore as much cult films as possible and see what makes them so beloved. So, Slowly, I'm exploring the works of Charles Bronson, and so far, I'm really enjoying everything that I've watched. He is a cool cat, man. I get it. I finally get it. Please, <laughs> if you haven't already, please check out the Death Wish films. If you would like to check out Death Wish, it's free on Pluto TV, three bucks to rent from all the digital places, and on Amazon. It's $10 on DVD and Blu-ray. Death Wish 2 is free on Vudu, 4 bucks to rent in all the usual digital places. And on Amazon, it's 6 bucks on DVD and $25 on Blu-ray. Death Wish 3 
is $4 to rent at all the usual digital places. And on Amazon.com, it's 8 bucks on DVD and 15 bucks on Blu-ray. Death Wish 4 is 4 bucks to rent on iTunes. And on Amazon, it's $9 on DVD and Blu-ray. Death Wish 5 is free on Tubi. And on Amazon, it's 8 bucks on DVD. Unfortunately, there's no Regional 1 Blu-ray. There is a complete five-film Blu-ray set for $43 on Amazon that claims it's all regions, but I don't know. I still think you're taking a chance. And all films are currently streaming on Prime, or at least they were last week. I had some bad luck trying to catch these films on Prime in the past. I noticed they kind of pop up and vanish real fast, so catch them while you can. All right, thanks for spending time with me. As you know, I really enjoy talking about movies with you. I love the Death Wish films. But I don't have a death wish. I have a life wish. I look forward to the world returning to a healthy, sane, peaceful, and safe place. Take care of yourself and each other. Until next time, aloha.